Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful privilege of being together here. And we just ask your Holy Spirit to guide and direct our thoughts and our footsteps. And we pray that your Spirit would once again accompany our study today, help to open our eyes and our ears to the truths that you want us to know. So we ask you this, Lord, now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I just want to quickly review our first three uh, pieces of righteousness by faith in the book of Daniel. And we looked at Daniel chapter 1, and I want to keep emphasizing this, but what was the core, what was the core thing that gave Daniel the strength and the ability and the wisdom to withstand the pressure in Babylon? What was it? He did what? He purposed in his heart, but he was giving his heart. And it's not just, when we talk about <clears throat> giving our hearts, it's not just this nilly-willy, oh yeah, I'm going to give my heart to Jesus, but it's a giving of the heart that's unreserved. Does that make sense? It's an unreserved surrender in which there is no thing that I am choosing to hang on to when I've given my heart to God, right? And so many times we... We talk to the youth and stuff. We talk about, oh, giving your heart to Jesus as if it's, if it's just like a thing that we do that is no different than, you know, like doing, my, doing their homework or, or getting up and getting dressed that day. But this unreserved surrender transforms and changes the entire life. We're in here today, brother. It's a little more comfortable. So uh, if you'd like to come in. And, and so this... this, this and so this, this unreserved, it's, it's only that type of a surrender that's going to really transform the life where we've emptied ourself of self and allowed God to fill us with His Spirit, yes? That's the only type of surrender that's really going to have an effectual lasting change in the external behaviors of our life. And you know, our church has at times, just like Israel did, focused on the external behaviors. And what has happened is, because the church focused so long on the external behaviors, people got frustrated because they were doing certain things on the outside, but their hearts had no peace. And so uh, what has happened in, in the recent movements up till now is people say, well, you know, we don't need to worry about external behaviors. We just need to focus on Jesus. And that's the other side of the ditch, you understand. And so what we need to have... Uh, is a, is a surrendered heart a changed inside that leads to a change outside as well? Because we know from our study that if Jesus lives within our hearts, there is no way that our external behaviors are going to be the same as they were when we were in charge of our own hearts. Is that right? I mean, He's going to live His life through us. The great mystery of the ages, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, if Christ lives His life in you, then the life's going to change. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be instantly perfect, okay? Uh, there's still the process of sanctification where Christ is changing us and transforming the image, but there will be a shift in the life, and our life will be on a continual track more and more towards heaven and more and more towards His character. Does that make sense? There's a difference there. And, it, and it's a continual growth in Jesus. How many can say amen? amen. And uh, some people, I want to say this because I want to add this element in, 
Some people talk about baptism and they say, well, you know, why is it that if a person accepts Jesus, that, you know, if they, if they said, yeah, I accept Jesus, but they're still addicted to smoking, why don't we just go ahead and baptize them and then get them off smoking later on? Or, or people have asked me, well, why don't we, why don't we just, when, they, when people come to the church and they believe in Jesus, why don't we just baptize them and then we can teach them the truths later and then they can become members of the church later? I mean, it sounds like a pretty novel idea, pretty good idea. And many people point to the book of Acts chapter 8 as an example of that. How many of you are familiar with Acts chapter 8? Right? Let me just take you there real quickly. And I want to make this point, and then we're going to come back. Acts chapter 8 and verse um, 26, it talks about Philip and the eunuch, right? The Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, worship was returning. And sitting on his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit of the Lord said to Philip, Go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. So then he was reading that passage about Jesus. And the eunuch asked him, Who is the author talking about, himself or someone else? And then the beautiful phrase there, verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture preached Jesus to him. Right? And you can say amen to that. Amen. We can't deny that. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, well, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he stopped the chariot. They went down in the water and he baptized him, right? We know the story. So people say, See there, they just shared with him Jesus and he got baptized. Why can't we do the same? Well, there's a key phrase here that many people miss. If you look back up there in verse 27, at the end of the verse, it talks about he was a man of Ethiopia under Canis, and then it says this, who had charge over her treasury, and notice this phrase, and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So this man was already keeping the Sabbath, he knew about the sanctuary. He knew about the health message. He knew about all these things. The element that he was missing was, was who Christ was personally. And that was the issue that everybody was missing. See, the problem is that in those days, everybody knew the other pieces to our message today. Sanctuary, health, Sabbath, all the, they knew those things. But the, the testing truth for them then was Jesus as the Messiah. Well, today, everybody understands Jesus as the Savior, but they don't understand the truth of Jesus. Does that make sense? So you have to have this package where you have Jesus and the truth of Jesus, right? And so here, here's another element that I think a lot of people miss. Is that when you're talking to a person about baptism... There are, two, there are two issues that I keep in mind 
when I'm looking to clear someone for baptism. There are issues of surrender, and then there are issues of growth. Does that make sense so far? Now let me give you an example of this. Eating unclean foods is a direct command of God not to do it, correct? It's not an issue of growth, it's an issue of surrender. What is God's ideal for His people in, in regards to eating? Healthy, but His ideal is that we're ultimately eating like Adam and Eve were eating, right? Are you understanding? When you look at the sanctuary, did you know there's, there's, there's food in the sanctuary? You understand that? The sanctuary, as you go through the sanctuary, you go from the, the outer court all the way into the most holy place, right? Have you ever noticed the trend of the food in the sanctuary? Have you ever noticed that? Where's all the unclean food? Well, unclean food is not really food, is it? Unclean is not intended to be food. But it's on the outside. It wasn't even allowed in. What kind of food is in the courtyard? It's the animal sacrifices, right? And the priest would actually eat part of the sacrifice. Some of you remember that. You read that in Leviticus. Then you go to the holy place. And so, let me, let me come back here. The courtyard represents which phase of salvation? Justification, right? That's where we lay our hands upon the Lamb, confess our sins, and the, la the sins are transferred over to Him. And, he, and that's, you know, that's when we're justified. Everybody with me so far? Then the, mo and then the holy place is what? Sanctification, right? And then the most holy place is glorification. So, once again, all the unclean food is on the outside. It doesn't even come in at all. Then you go into the, into the courtyard, and the priests are eating that, and then you go into the holy place, and what kind of food is there? There's showbread, but there was also, sometimes the priest would come in and eat the sacrifice in the holy place. Right? So there's sanctification. There's a mixture of both. Then when you go into the most holy place... What kind of food is in there? There's manna and almonds. Remember Aaron's rod that budded with the almond blossoms? So you got almonds and manna. So you see the progression that God has for His people. Are you with me? From unclean to clean to growth in that with the mixture of both. But ultimately His ideal is what? To be totally free from those flesh things. That makes sense? Are you with me? So unclean foods is an issue of surrender. Becoming a vegetarian is an issue of growth. Does that make sense? Now, now in the process of growth, there are acts of surrender, okay? But what I'm saying is, it's an issue of growth. When I think about Sabbath keeping, working on the Sabbath, unless it's you know, like medical or something, but just changing tires or whatever, working on, on the, uh, my job on the Sabbath, is that an issue of surrender or an issue of growth? It's an issue of surrender, right? <clears throat> but what about how I keep the Sabbath, the activities I do on the Sabbath? That's an issue of growth, isn't it? Because people are always continuing to grow and maybe something that they, 
didn't think about at one point in time, two years down the road, they say, I'm not sure that's the best idea for us on the Sabbath. This is not really what God is really wanting us to do. He wants us to fill our time with a better activity, right? Does that make sense? So there are issues of growth and surrender. So when we talk about righteousness by faith, when Daniel, he's talking about unreserved surrender. So as I said before, we're not necessarily going to be perfect when we give an unreserved surrender. There's still going to be growth, but our hearts and our attitudes are going to be of the mindset that, Lord, whatever you show me, I'm willing to do it. I'm either willing to do or not do whatever is your ideal is for me. Does that make sense? Now, God in His mercy, well, God could say, all right, since you have that attitude, I'm glad you have it. Here's everything you need to change in your life. Bam! And what would happen to us? We would get crushed, right? wouldn't we? But God in His mercy gives it to us a piece at a time, doesn't He? And he says, but I want you to be on that upward track. I want you to be on that upward journey, constantly trusting in me, constantly surrendering to me. And day by day, week by week, year by year, I'm going to show you the things that need to keep changing in your life. But until we, and so some people might say, well, but, but what, about, what about if I die in that state? Am I going to be lost? Well, no. Why? Because what am I doing? Whose righteousness am I trusting in? Christ. I'm not trusting in my own righteousness. I'm claiming the righteousness of Christ while I'm growing until I grow completely into all that He wants me to grow into. Does that make sense? And so we're secure, amen? As long as our hearts are totally surrendered to God, we can have assurance, amen? It's the moment that we begin to look to something else or look to ourselves or trust in ourselves or unwillingness to surrender those things. That's when that relationship becomes strained and that's when it becomes difficult for God to keep revealing new light to me because he do- God doesn't reveal new light to us when we're unwilling to walk in the light that He gives us. Not because God says, well, you know, if you're not going to do this, then I'm not... No, but because it's because He doesn't want to overwhelm us. And He doesn't want to destroy us in that process, you understand. He's very patient and merciful. How many are thankful for that today? All right. So God provides for those who will not defile themselves before Him, but the only way they cannot defile themselves is by giving their heart and stepping out in faith. Daniel 2, staying connected to Him through daily prayer Increasing our faith by studying prophecy. Do we see those two principles in the chapter? We didn't go through the prophecy because everybody knows it. But then Daniel 3, memorizing and claiming God's promises in the midst of trial and crises, believing that the Word will do what it says, but not just in general, but specifically where? In us. Amen? I don't know any Seventh-day Adventist today that doesn't believe that the Word is true and that it will do what it says. That's never been the struggle of God's people. The struggle of God's people has always been that he will, we believe he, it will be accomplished in our lives, right? That's where we always hesitate and stumble and, and struggle, yes? All right, so let's go on now to Daniel chapter 4. And what is the story of Daniel chapter 4? Anybody remember? 
Yeah, the tree. And who's, the, who's one of the main characters there besides Daniel? It's uh, Nebuchadnezzar again, of course. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is uh, still not figured, quite figured out that surrender, has he? <laughs> but he does in this chapter. And you know, the thing that I love about God is that He's willing to go as far as He needs to to bring that surrender in our lives, isn't He? And I'm thankful to God if it takes a broken body to bring healing to a broken heart, that's what He'll do, isn't it? Sometimes we have to lay flat on our backs to be willing to look up, right? Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom for us to really know that God is the rock at the bottom. Isn't that true? So let's go to Daniel chapter 4, and let's read uh, verses 1 and on. It says here, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it was good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. So at this point in time, is at the, he's writing this chapter after these things have happened, correct? Are you with me? Yep. And uh, what exactly was it that God was doing for him? Look with me there in verse 37, then we'll come back to it. But it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to do what? Put down. Would there be a lot of pride in the last days? What do you think? Remember what we said all along, that these chapters in Daniel, the first six chapters, are stories that God's people will specifically find themselves in, circumstances and experiences that God's people will find themselves in just before Jesus comes, right? And we've seen that from Daniel chapter 1 through 3. We've seen that already, you know, with Babylon and then the whole world turning their eyes to the prophecies and then, and then the mark of the beast the prelude of the Mark of the Beast in Daniel 3. And now, once you get past those climaxes, you're, the climax of that, that Mark of the Beast scenario, now you're looking at some more of the issues of the heart in God's people. Are you with me? And the issues that need to be removed from their hearts before they can be sealed for Christ's return. What do you say? So let's take a look here. Look with me in 2 Timothy. Hold your finger there in Daniel. But go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2. Let's see if at the end of time people are going to be dealing with pride. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 and 2. It says, But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Do you suppose that we live in that type of a time? What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you'll have some of these in your notes that I'll send to you. And uh, I don't have these on the screen, but here are some of the things that pride leads to. If you look at, uh, there's a bunch of texts here, most of them in the Proverbs. So the first one is Psalm 10, 4. You can write it down. It tells us that pride leads to godlessness. Then the rest of these are Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 10, it leads to contention. 28, 25, leads to strife. 11, 2, leads to shame. 29, 23, it brings you low. 15, 25, it leads to your destruction. Do we have pride in our churches today? And it's easy for people to point to the problems in the church, not realizing that they're probably part of the problem, aren't they? Because there's not a problem in a church and thus there's a problem in the people. And so the reality is that we don't need revival in the church. We need revival in our own hearts. And that will bring revival to the church corporately. What do you think? How many believe that to be true? So where does the problem start? With me. Where does the solution start? Well, it starts with God, but it comes through me first, right? And, uh, and so we need that experience. Well, let's go back here to Daniel and uh, let's read verses 4 and on. He says, Daniel chapter 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Does this sound, does this sound familiar? Uh, has this happened before? It's a repeat, isn't it? I mean, he still had not learned his lesson. But then look at verse 8. But at last Daniel came before me, his name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. And notice this. This is so amazing to me because he says, in parentheses, in him is the spirit of what kind of God? He's recognizing the difference and the character, not just of Daniel, but the difference in character between the God that he serves and the God that Daniel serves. Are you with me there? And so here, here's, the, here's a very important point. And it is that the goal of Christ living within is not just simply so that I know that I'm like Christ. The goal is that others, specifically those who don't know Him, can recognize that my God is something special because He's living in me. Does that make sense? And so when a Gentile, when a pagan, can look at Daniel and say, the Spirit of the Holy God is in this man, that's an amazing concept, don't you think? And that's what we want the world to see about us. What do you say? We want the world around us to say, man, those people are just divinely special. 
there's something about them that they are not like others. And that, and that these people around us are going to recognize that. And so we're going to have to be intentional, aren't we? In our interactions with them. And we're going to have to be careful. You know, Peter talks about walking circumspectly upon, among the Gentiles so that they don't have anything negative to say about us. Are you with me? And so this is a powerful point to me. But anyway. So how can you tell if somebody has the Holy Spirit? Tell me, tell me some ways in which you would know that somebody has the Holy Spirit. You'll know them by the fruits. But what fruits? What fruits are we looking for? Okay. But are those the type of characteristics that we tend to elevate in the church? Let me ask you that. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5 quickly. Galatians chapter 5. Are you guys with me today? Are you, are you gaining something? Good. Okay. Good. I'm just making sure. Galatians 5. Now, if you read from verse uh, 16 and on, uh, you'll find a similar list as we found in 2 Timothy. I'm not going to read that, but that's the, those are the things of the flesh. But look up in verse 16 quickly. He says, I say then, walk in the what? Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So if you're trying to not, if you're trying to, in your own strength, just simply resist the urge to, 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 to do fleshly things, you're going to do them. <laughs> Are you with me? Whatever it is, whether it's honesty or whether it's adultery or, or lust or whatever, the only way to, to not walk in the flesh is to walk in the what? In the Spirit. And the only way to walk in the Spirit is to surrender the heart to God in what capacity? Completely and totally. By saying, God, everything I am and everything I have is yours. And I'm willing to go in any direction you ask me to go. Even if it's absolutely radical, I'm willing to do it. Right? So let's jump down to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, which is patience. You know, the word long-suffering, if you just flip that around, it's suffering long, right? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does it say, is there a difference between the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, yes or no? Yeah. What's the difference? It's for the work of ministry, right? It's for the work of ministry. Does God give the same gifts to every person? No. Does He give some gifts to every person? Yes. But what, so what's the difference in the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit? The, the gift of the Spirit is what the Spirit of God gives me to do a work of ministry for others, right? The fruit of the Spirit is the natural result of being a disciple of Christ. It, it, it's the natural uh, output of what's taking place in the heart. Does that make sense? 
Are you with me? So now, are the fruits of the Spirit intended for every Christian to exuberate? Yes or no? Yes. So the gifts, some gifts are given to all, but not all gifts are given to all. But for the fruits are given to all, for all. Correct? Now, question for you. Do we typically exonerate or, or uplift these type of characteristics when we see someone with these characteristics, do we tend to uplift them? Yes or no? I'm going somewhere with this. Well, back to your Sometimes. original question. Sometimes, right? Yeah. How do you tell if somebody has, if they're walking in the Spirit? That's exactly right. And my point is this. Well, let me ask you this. Let me, let me make my point through a question. What type of things do we tend to exonerate in the Adventist church? I'm looking for one in particular. Yeah. Good speakers. Great entertainers. Dynamic preachers. Right? Great Sabbath school teachers. And we tend to say, wow, that guy is full of the Spirit of God. And Ellen White says that it is possible for a man to get up front and give a very uh, dynamic and eloquent presentation and be absolutely destitute of the Spirit of God. Are you with me? And we tend to have this mindset of Adventist celebrities. Are you with me? And as much as I love, there's some of them here in this camp site that we tend to put that picture on. And, and we tend to, to, to look to that as a measure of true Christianity when the Bible says, that it's the fruits of the Spirit of God that are the real test. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And so it really, I just get on a pet peeve because, you know, like... Not necessarily the gifts. It's not the gifts that we're to exalt, it's the fruit. But we exalt the gifts all the time. But the gifts are a lesser... I mean, I'm not undermining the gifts, but the gifts are a means to get more fruit. <laughs> Now look, if, if I have a fruit orchard, I have a garden at home. I could show you pictures of my garden. The thing's blooming beautifully. I already got cucumber flowers and already harvested a bunch of some lettuce and things. But what do you prefer if you have an orchard? Do you prefer to put your shovels and your rakes and your pruners and all your tools up on a wall and say, wow, I mean, those are really amazing. Or do you prefer to use those tools and have beautiful trees that are producing apples and pears and all those things? And which one do you, do you have a greater admiration for? Using the tools. You get my picture. But we want to stand in the garage and look at all the tools and talk about how great the tools are while they're the fruits out there. And God says, look, this is, these things are just a means to get more of this over here. Are you with me? And it frustrates me. And that leads to spiritual pride in the church, very much similar to the pride that Nebuchadnezzar had. Okay? Now let's go back to, let's go back to Daniel 4. And, and, and the reason I bring that up is because We're never going to really develop the fruit of the Spirit in our, in our 
hearts and in our lives as a church until we really, as a people, surrender the pride and surrender the heart completely to Christ. And, and it all comes back to righteousness by faith. Okay, All right, back to Daniel chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> so how can you tell if someone truly has the Holy Spirit? Write these three texts down. Numbers 14, 24. They follow, they follow God fully. And I believe that that text was talking about Caleb. They follow God fully. Proverbs 1, 23. They are correctable. They're teachable. And Acts 5, 32. They are obedient. Did Daniel have these characteristics? Yes or no? He absolutely did, didn't he? How can somebody receive the Holy Spirit? Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus says, all you have to do is what? All you have to do is ask. How many can say amen? All right. How does the Bible picture spirit-filled people? What do you think? Well, we talked about that a little bit. I'm not going to... I'm wrestling because I, I want to cover some of these things, but we're, we don't have enough time to cover it all. But you can write this down, look it up later. Psalm 1, 1 to 3. Pictures them like trees planted beside the waters. Amen? And uh, those trees are beautiful, they're big, but are they, are they really beautiful and big because of their own doing? Yes or no? They're beautiful and big because they're planted by the waters, right? which is the righteousness of Christ. All right, let's keep going here. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 10. He says, These are were the visions of my head while on my bed. Well, let's go back to, to verse 9. Actually, we didn't read that. So he told him the dream, and he says, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the Spirit of the Holy God is in you, and no secret what? Troubles you. Isn't that amazing? That is another blessing of being filled with the Spirit of God, that no secret troubles us. Think you like being called chief of the Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Nebuchadnezzar, he's still, he's, God's still working on him here, isn't he? But he was on his bed, verse 10, I was looking, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant. And in it was the food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all the flesh fled from it. I'm sorry, fed from it. A, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried out aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth. Bound it with a band of iron and bronze till the tender and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze with the beast and the grass of the earth. And let his heart be changed from that of a man and give him the heart of a beast. And let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He will, and sets over it the lowest of men. This point in the last verse, 
I, I didn't even think about it till now. He gives it to whomever He will, and He sets it over the lowest of men. That is so opposite of how we often operate, isn't it? Especially in the church. We want to take the best speaker, the best whatever, the best thing, and we want to just... But God says, you know what? His glory is not displayed greatly through people with natural gifts. His glory is displayed when He takes somebody that really has little or no gifts and He does a mighty work through them. Amen? And we still just can't grasp that principle in the church, can we? We just still can't do it. All right. So he sees in the dream, of course, the tree, and, and then it comes and chops it down, etc. What is it that Daniel tells him is the interpretation? So uh, once again in verse 18, King Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel but at, the, at the very end, he says, but you are able to give the interpretation. Why? For the spirit of the holy God is in you. So he says that to Daniel three times, doesn't he? It's a very interesting that the king takes note of that. All right, so what happens in the interpretation? Uh, Daniel reads to him, and he, or he speaks to him, and he tells him basically that the dream represents who? It represents Nebuchadnezzar. And that God's going to send him to his... He's going to bring judgment to him if he does not break off his sins. Does that sound familiar in the book of Revelation? That, that harlot, God bore long, bore long, bore long, but there's going to be judgment if, if a person doesn't break off their sins. And so he, he, he talks about him. I'm just going to, I'm trying to explain it without reading it, but let's just read it. He says in verse um, 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. And, uh, Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree which you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and the earth could be seen by, and could, which could be seen by all the earth, the leaves were abundant, etc., etc. Verse 22, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And as much as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze the beasts of the field seven times till seven times passes over him, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They will drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times will pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And as much then... As they gave the command to leave the stump of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured you after you have come to know that heaven rules. Now, Lewis, verse 27. Man, this is a powerful verse. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, 
Does this advice still apply to us today? What do you think? Are we in a state of Laodicea? Yes or no? We live in an age where it's offensive to tell anyone that what they're doing is wrong. You're judging me. And as a church, we've, we've tended to cower back. We, we get in one of two problematic places. Either we tell people something harshly, and we usually pick the wrong thing to talk to them about. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe somebody comes into the church and they're visiting the church, and they, they're wearing you know, jewelry or something, and somebody says some foolish thing to them, whatever. And we usually say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Or we get on the other... So, so we, we will always say something about the wrong thing, and we usually don't say anything about the real relevant thing, right? And we say, well, we just need to put our arms around people and love them. Well, I agree with that. But part of loving someone is actually talking to them about the issues that are leading them to destruction. Does that make sense? There's ne- there, and there's, there's a certain time that we need to do that, and there's a certain time that we need not. Okay, But we are too afraid. But Daniel here is a prime example of what is needed in the church today. And that is to put our arms around people and say, look... Let me show you a better way. With sweetness, with kindness, sharing truth with love, even at at the risk that they may be upset with us. Now I say that with great hesitancy because for somehow the saints always seem to not always do it the right way. I'm not saying all saints, but some saints. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, they, they, tend to, they tend to go about it the wrong way and they tend to create damage that leads to baggage and it, and it just creates a big problem. But we need to have the boldness. People, people think that today that they're not accountable to anyone. But the truth of the matter is when you read the New Testament and you read the book of Acts and you read the writings of Paul, they were accountable to each other. And they, and, they, and they submitted to themselves to the authority of one another. Does that make sense? I mean, there are times when Paul says, like, you need to, you need to do this. You need to, you need to shun them for a season. Or you need to, you need to approach them. And, and, and today, even with the, it's gotten to the place where it's even with the pastor that when the pastor approaches somebody about an issue, they say, who are you to tell me what to do? Well, if you're a member of the church and you're a child of God, then the church has ecclesiastical authority over. We, all have, we are our body. Does that make sense? Now, we're still our own individual people, but there is a unity. There, when we come together from independent units into a collective body, that is a greater level of authority than you could even have over yourselves. Does that make sense? And it's a better authority. It's a what? It's a better authority. 
And to be able to approach people with that love and with that kindness and with that mercy, but still with that resolute desire to see them redeemed from the path that they're on, we've lost that as a church. We've lost it. And it's a very sad, troubling thing. Are you with me? But here you have Daniel, and I don't know exactly how old he was at this point, but he's coming to the king of the entire empire. And he's saying, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. Make sense? Break away from this thing and turn to righteousness. And I think that if we would approach many people who are on the wrong path with love, we could turn them back, their hearts back to Christ, and their hearts would come back on a path that they need to be on. I'll give you a prime example of this. There was a gentleman in church where I pastored, and we wanted him to be on the deacon's team. And uh, he was engaged. I wouldn't say he wasn't engaged in a wrong thing. There was just a, a certain right thing that he was not doing that he should be doing that every, every faithful Christian should be doing. Does that make sense? Okay. And I spoke to him about it. I said, brother, we'd really like you to be on this leadership team. It was actually an assistant deacon. And it, it was the Lansing Church, so it, it's a large church. So we have like a head deacon and then like four assistant deacons and then like 20 regular deacons. And I said, we want you to be one of those four assistant deacons, but there's this one issue that that I need to visit with you about, and I don't want to make any assumptions. I'm, I'm assuming that this is taking place, but we're just not seeing the record of it, but we want our leadership team to be strong in the, in the, in the fundamental truths of, of the Bible, and I just wanted to ask you about this. Maybe it's, it's happening in another dynamic that we're not aware of, but would you just talk to me about it? And he says to me, and you never know how these conversations will go, and he said, you know what? He said, I am so thankful that somebody had the courage to talk to me about this. He says, there, there's an interesting family dynamic that's made it challenging for me. He says, um, but, he says but I'm going to tear, carry this to my family and it's going to happen. We're going to do the right thing. And I'm thankful you talked to me about it. I had another person, similar situation. I wanted them on the personal ministries team. And I went to them. And they said, oh, I had no idea about this. Because my wife, it was, it was, it was returning tithe. He said, my wife was in charge and, and I had no idea that it wasn't happening. Now, if I had not spoken to him, I approached it the same way. I said, brother, I'm just assuming that this is happening Maybe it's, it's, do, it's in another way that we're not seeing, but I just wanted to visit with you about it. Could we talk about it? And he said, yeah, I, I didn't even know. And he took care of it, and it, it was a thing. But we have to have the courage, like Daniel, to not just to, to make sure our own hearts are, are experiencing surrender, but that we are lovingly seeking to strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church to also have the experience of surrender. Does that make sense? Now, there's a huge difference 
and spiritual accountability and being a busybody. Does that make sense? And, so, and, and sometimes people are busybodies thinking that they're being, spir- they're being the spiritual guardians of the church. Are you with me? One aspect is that when you're a busybody, you go to a person that you've had no relationship with and you're trying to talk to them about those issues. And the other thing about being a busybody is when you've talked to that person, then you go to others in the church and tell them about that person's thing. That before, the difference is that when I'm striving to call my brothers and sisters around me higher in spiritual accountability, I've built a relationship with them and I've loved them as much as I've loved my own self and my own family and I'm putting my arms around them and I'm seeking to pull them higher and protecting them. You know, Ellen White says that Jesus protected people. Even Judas, he protected Judas and he would not expose him publicly. Isn't that an amazing thing? He ex- refused to expose Judas publicly even though Judas betrayed him. Mind-blowing thing. And so this is, the, this is an important principle and, and, and the understanding of righteous by faith is that we need to be putting our arms around each other and we need to be strengthening each other and lifting each other up and holding each other spiritually accountable so that we're all having this experience of growth and unity together. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Now, it sounds nice, but what do we do? How do we take advantage of that? Well, it starts with you, and you need to have one or two couple of families, as many as you can manage, that you start drawing close to in the church on a social basis, and you build that spiritual bond with them, and you help them to grow, and then they become the same to someone else. Does that make sense? Amen? All right, so that's a whole nother, whole nother seminar. But anyway, all right, let's go on here. Um, did this actual thing happen that Daniel had said? Well, you look in verse 28. It goes on, it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Isn't that unfortunate? At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about in the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is this not great Babylon? which I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, to the kingdom has what? Departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass and like oxen, and still seven years have passed over you until you know the Most High rules. And that very hour... Verse 33, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven from men and ate like grass, ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, and his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my head, my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does, do, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Isn't that a very moving passage? 
a beautiful question. How could he have avoided that judgment? By repentance. And this is the same issue in Revelation. This is the whole issue with the entire world. God gave Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel this message of repentance, didn't he? The message of the gospel and the message of bearing fruits of righteousness. And he says, if you don't, that this is the response, this is the judgment that's going to come upon you. In Revelation 14, God says, here is your problem. Here is the answer. And if you don't respond, this is the result. It's the same picture here. Revelation 14 being played out right here. Except with Revelation 14, it's a picture for the whole world. With me? And so, naturally, he doesn't do that, and neither will most of the world. There will be a few in comparison to the overall population that will. And the result is absolute destruction for the people. And, um, of course, they're not going to get another opportunity. <laughs> I mean, they've had their opportunities already, um, as well as Nebuchadnezzar. But praise the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar turned away and eventually. And so he eventually broke off his sin, and that was in chapter 4, his ultimate conversion. Yes or no? And friends, huh? Oh, it goes chapter 4 was his true conversion. He kept going back and forth in the previous chapters. Now I want to say this, that in God's attempt to bring us and grow us into that which He wants us to do, we need to have hard experiences. Why? Because sin has hardened us. God's heart is very tender. And it greatly pains Him to see us go through difficult situations. But we need it. But our culture, I think at the devising of Satan, has created such a culture that at the very onset, the very moment we begin to experience discomfort, what do we do? We try to get out of it. Isn't that true? And spiritually speaking, individually and as a church, the moment the church goes into a crisis, or the moment my life goes into a crisis, we say either, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Or we think, oh God, I've done something bad. Or, oh God, please get me out of this. What are you thinking, God, to allow this to happen? Have I not paid my tithe? Have I not kept the Sabbath? I thought that if I did everything right, God was supposed to bless me. Well, some of the greatest trials of your life will be your greatest blessings. Now, I had cancer in 2009 and I almost died. And God carried me through a rich experience. Don't can't say I want to do that on a daily basis, but uh, it was a very rich experience which I gained a lot. And I, and, I, and, I'm, and I had a deeper maturity spiritually when I came out of that thing. And so instead of asking God, why is this happening to me? We need to ask the question, how? Lord, how can you transform my life? How can I be drawn closer to you? How can I be made more like you in that process? Does that make sense? And so instead of, instead of quickly trying to figure out how we can get rid of this thing and throw it off, we need to draw close to it. 
And we need to, like Jacob did, when Christ came and wrestled with him, he said, I will not let you go unless you what? Bless me. But how often are we ready to say, well, if this is how it's going to be when I'm following God, I'm just throwing in the towel. I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to leave the church. You know, they're going to talk to me that way. I'm just going to be out of here. You know what I'm talking about? That's the first response we often have is we're just going to get out of here. But no, God says, I want you to hang on to that thing because it's going to be your deepening conversion experience. And it's going to be, you're going to grow through that thing. And you're going to see my power displayed on your behalf if you don't run away. Amen? And so, with Nebuchadnezzar, did he have that experience? God put him in a circumstance that he could not escape from. And God may just do that for you. What do you think? Well, let me tell you what, friends. If God were to withdraw His presence and His Spirit from each and every one of us, you know how we would become? We would become like that beast. And somehow we think that we are so refined and so noble, but I'll tell you what, I, know, I could tell you right now what I'd be doing if I, if I didn't have the hand of the Spirit of God restraining me, my flesh. I won't tell you, but I'll tell you, I, I, I could tell you. Probably much worse than what I can even imagine. There is no depth, there is no low that Satan cannot carry you if the Spirit of God is not restraining your heart. How many of you are thankful for the Spirit of God today? Amen. And it took that experience for Nebuchadnezzar to finally get it, to finally recognize that he was nothing. He was as dust. And God was everything. And that's the experience. If we're going to experience righteousness by faith, that is what we must come to. Not just a philosophical theological speaking of it, but a true experience in the heart that carries outward into the life that God is everything and we are nothing. Now we, we, we you know, we, and somebody says, well, but we're the children of God and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, of course, all that's true, but, but all the worth that we have is placed, is because of it's His, it's his worth. It's His goodness. It's not our own goodness. And we think too highly of ourselves. And I mean, I'm not trying to say we should go around beating ourselves up. That's not what I'm saying. We should be joyful and, and restful and assured by the promises of God of what He's going to do for us. But we have to recognize that we are nothing. And we say it all the time, but we do not really acknowledge it in our actions and in our lives and in our choices. How many of you would agree with that today? How many of you know that's your experience? And so we need the experience of Nebuchadnezzar. We need to be stripped of everything to recognize just who he is. From pompous pride to humble power. I mean, you can say amen. All right. We've got about eight minutes. So let's quickly, let me go to, uh, I'm just going to highlight chapter 5 and 6 for you quickly. Um, um, in Daniel chapter 5, you have the story of Belshazzar. And if you notice very carefully that uh, Belshazzar and Belteshazzar's names are very 
similar. Did you know that? Did you know that the name Belteshazzar given to Daniel by Nebuchadnezzar, the T corrupted the name. Belshazzar, Bel is the false god. Belshazzar means something like servant of Bel or something. But Belteshazzar gave an emphasis to the name that would tell everyone that Daniel was a captive. He was not a true Babylonian. Did you know that? And so that, the difference in the name. What's that? That's why you put the T in there. Absolutely. But, you know, the story shows that it was... Um, Belshazzar was the uncorrupted form of the name, but you can tell that the difference in the characters, that Daniel had the uncorrupted character, though he had the corrupted name, and Belshazzar had the uncorrupted name with the very corrupted character, right? Um, so you find the comparison between Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 of Belshazzar, and Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, I'm just going to list these quickly for you. They'll be in the notes that I'll email to you. But Belshazzar desired rich foods. He was a man of the flesh. He desired rich foods. He drank alcohol. He was sacrilegious. He was morally impure. And he denied prophetic history. Because you remember when, when the handwriting was on the wall and Daniel was standing there rebuking him, he recounts to him the history of Nebuchadnezzar, right? And he says, but then he says these words, this you knew, you, you, though you knew all this, you defied it. You remember that when he did that? We don't have time to go to it. But, um, but Daniel ate simple foods, would not drink alcohol, had given his heart to God, was morally pure, and upheld prophetic history. And so Daniel was 17 years old when he was taken, uh, probably captive 16 or 17 and he was shown that he was a man of the Spirit. Belshazzar, when he was about 15, um, similar age, but very different corruption. Do you see that? All right, let me uh, bring out another point. Um, and so, Belshazzar was always making fleshly promises. So he, he, was, he was making fleshly choices and fleshly promises. You know, when he brought out the cups, it was a fleshly choice. Then when the handwriting came on the wall, he made a fleshly promise that you could have, he would, he, whoever could interpret the writing, he would give them a, a chain and a purple robe and a, he'd be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Remember that? But what did Daniel tell him about his fleshly promises? He said what? You can keep it, right? I don't need it. Um, and God's people are not motivated by such fleshly tactics. So do you suppose that at the end of time, when everything is caving in on Babylon now, right? So this is the fall of Babylon. Do you suppose then that the world is going to first threaten and then try to bribe God's people? What do you think? you suppose that could be a case? Absolutely. But there the only place to find answers are going to be from God's people. Um, so let's see here. The king's final act was actually, was actually death. Um, and this, this is very interesting because when you look at Revelation, it talks about Jesus coming from the east, the river Euphrates and all that, to rescue His people, correct? Correct. In Daniel, you have 
Cyrus, who comes and dries up the river Euphrates and overtakes the kingdom of Babylon, correct? Now don't miss this. Belshazzar, in his life of flesh, fell by the sword that night. But Daniel, who was a man of the Spirit, was carried over into the next kingdom. And he served the king, King Cyrus and King Darius, uh, King Darius, he served him faithfully when the night that Babylon fell. And you have these two descriptive lives, a man of the flesh and a man of the spirit. One survives the fall of Babylon, and one perishes with the fall of Babylon. And so the bottom line of this chapter is, basically, are you going to allow the flesh to rule your life? Or are you going to surrender the flesh to Christ and allow the Spirit of God to live in you? Amen? Which one do you want? Which one do you want? Now, in chapter, there's more to it, but there's, um, that's it. Now, let's quickly, in two minutes, chapter 6. Basically, basically let's, 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 do, let's just say this. That God's people stand for God's law. Amen? And, uh, and Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, God's people, because they stand for His law, will be falsely accused and thrown into a peril, a dangerous state. But if you notice that when they're thrown into the lion's den, what do they do when they cover the lion's den? They, they cover it and, and, the, and, the, and the apparent tomb is sealed. Are you with me? It's sealed. And so even though God's people seem to be in the mouth and the claws of the lion, which is the enemy, yet God seals them and Satan cannot touch them at the end of time. How many of you can say amen to that? And they are willing to follow the law of God rather than the laws of men. That's the bottom line at the end of time, right? And it all started with giving their heart to God. Are you with me? But at the end of time, they're sealed and they come out of the mouth of the lion without a scratch on them. You know, if you ever read the great controversy, Ellen White says that when probation closes, I believe that there will be martyrs from now till Jesus comes. I believe that there, there will, God, some of God's people will be killed. But Ellen White says that once probation closes, and every decision has been decided. I forget what page it's on, but it's in there. She says that God will not allow the enemy to touch a single hair upon the head of God's people. When they come at them with swords, the swords will just crumble in their hands. And they will fall down at their feet. And they will not be able to touch them. Why? Because God only allows His people to be persecuted if it serves a purpose of winning others to his kingdom. And you know, when Daniel went in that tomb, the tomb was sealed and he came out again alive. And that was a prelude. It's not a, only a prelude to the end of time, but it's also a prelude to Christ going into the tomb and coming out alive. Amen? Is resurrected as well. A beautiful passage. So let me just uh, close with this, and then I'm going to show you one quick thing, and then we'll be done. 
Sanctified Life, page 21. The character of Daniel is presented to the world as a striking example of what God's grace can make of men and women fallen by nature and corrupted by sin. The record of his noble self-denying life is an encouragement to our common humanity. From it, we may gather strength to nobly resist temptation and firmly, in the grace of meekness, stand for the right under the severest trial. So whatever trials you're going through today, whatever battles you're facing, whatever temptations you're wrestling with, has God made a way of escape for you? But sometimes the escape is not your removal from the circumstance. Sometimes your escape is to put the sails up and meet it head on and to go right through that thing. Are you with me? So whether God decides to remove us or change our circumstances or cause us to endure, we need to trust Him, amen? And we need to always be giving Him our what? Our hearts. So once again, just to wrap up, Daniel 1, giving our hearts to who? God, continually. Stepping out in faith to help others give their heart to Him as well, right? Remember the story of the eunuch? Number two, staying connected with Him through daily prayer, increasing our faith by studying prophecy. Amen? Number three, memorizing and claiming God's promises in the midst of trial and crises and believing that the Word of God will do what it says in us. Number four, asking for and living, walking in the Spirit of God. Yes? Number five, we should make a decision to immediately act on truth when we see it so that we do not become a person of the flesh. We want to be a person of the Spirit, yes? And number six, being sealed by God and used by Him. Now, I'm going to appreciate uh, Dave, David Boldock, who gave me this, and I'm just going to share this with you. He, he's a, he doesn't want me to say his name, but I don't want to pretend like I came up with this. But in Daniel 4, a, a beautiful picture of the three angels' message, in Daniel 4, you have that first angel's message where the Creator alone is worthy of worship, right? Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that in his life. Daniel 5, the second angel's message, Babylon knew about God but forsook Him, and they fell as a result. Daniel 6, the third angel's message, worship God despite human threats and decrees. Yes? How many can say amen to that? Well, I appreciate you guys uh, being with us, and... Did anybody not sign the email list? You're just going to hit me up, weren't you? You got the list. Is anybody? I'm going to email the notes from this week. Uh, does anybody need to sign this still? All right, good. Well, may the Lord bless you. And my appeal to you is to stick with the church, amen? Because the church is going through. It's going through. The ship is going to make it. The ship is going to sail into the harbor. That's not the question. It's not the question if, if the shirt, Ellen White says there will not be another movement. The question is, are you going to be on the ship? That's always the question. How many of you are saying, Lord, today, by your grace, I want you to keep me, preserve me, and I want to be on the ship. Amen? Amen. By your grace, I want to claim the righteousness of Christ as mine, and I want to live in that righteousness. 
and in the hope and the trust and the, re- and, and the belief and the reality that Jesus is going to recreate us fully in His image. Amen? You believe that today? Is that your desire? Amen. Well, let's pray together as we close. Dear Father, we thank You for the privilege of this message that we have. And Lord, a beautiful message of righteousness by faith. And Lord, we want that experience. We don't want to just read about it. We want it to, to know that it's in our hearts and it's changing our hearts and changing our lives. So please, Lord, draw close to us. Open to us the truth and help us, Lord, to make those decisions that are necessary to be wholly surrendered to You. And it all starts, Lord, with making the choice now to give our hearts to You. So Lord, we make that choice. We've made that decision now. Take our hearts that are prone to wander and keep them and empower them to do Your will. We pray as we trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for our righteousness. In His name we ask, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.